the last six today. So we'll start with, uh, with commitment number seven. And it begins, the, the covenant begins with, uh, by the enabling grace of God, we shall. So these are things that we're doing, um, asking God to give us the strength, asking God to give us the grace uh, to fulfill this commitment, this covenant, this promise that we've made. So number seven, we shall seek biblical answers to our problems as well as build our lives in the holy word of God. Seek biblical answers to our problems as well as build our lives in the holy word of God. Uh, now, you know, uh, just by the nature of that that commitment, um, I like that. Brother Wallace and, and, and Brother Mike were, were thinking like biblical counselors when they put that in there, which just essentially means this. If your thinking is informed by Scripture, you're going to be thinking like a biblical counselor too. One of the commitments that we make as we... Um, come into not, it's not even just excluded to this uh, church membership, but one of the, one of the commitments that we ought to be making as a Christian, but we're thinking about the church covenant. One of the commitments that we make as we join together as a church, we prayed this morning that the Lord would bless us to, um, do everything we can to keep unity, to maintain unity. And one of the ways that we maintain unity is as when problems arise, we seek to, as individuals and corporately, we seek to resolve those problems or at least respond to those problems biblically. And we seek to build our lives on the Holy Word of God. So, in other words, it's not necessarily... Um, our unity is not found in a personality. It's not found in, in, in you trying to conform your life to the personality of the pastor or the, the strongest personality that happens to be in the church, whether that be, um, in some churches, sometimes that's the deacon body or, or, or whatever. Our unity is, is, is involved or our unity is built on me, as the pastor, being just as accountable as you in seeking to bring ourselves under the authority of Scripture and build our lives upon that and seek answers to our problems. Now, <clears throat> I'm thinking at this point as far as uh, seeking biblical answers to our problems, I'm thinking more now on an individual level, since this is a church covenant that we as individuals enter into. And and one of the things that uh, can be hard when it comes to keeping this particular one, as far as the church as a whole is concerned, one of the things that can be difficult is... Uh, so often people just want to pretend as if they live lives free of problems. As if it's only the, the weak members or it's only the folks who just don't really have it together who have problems. Do you know that the, the bulk of the New Testament is written to and about churches and people who have problems? I mean, if you were to remove the epistles that addressed problems, there'd be nothing left. Do you know that? And when we're thinking about churches, it's, it's worth noting, just like today, the churches of the first century were populated with people, just like me and you. There are times, and I understand what people say when they say this, to an extent, but I'm afraid sometimes this is said in a way that's just not very informed. There are times when people say, we long for that first century Christianity. Okay, I understand as far as the way that the Spirit was moving and building His church in a, in a powerful way, but brothers and sisters, if you think that the first century church had something better going than the church today, you hadn't been reading very closely. 
the first century church had problems. The first century church had problems that you and I would blush at today. There were struggles that people had to work through. As a matter of fact, the first century church had problems that are exactly like a lot of the problems that you and I have today. The point is this, from the very beginning, what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ, when you look through uh, the epistles, what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ was when problems come up as individuals and, and in the church. Now, this goes along with the territory. This is not primarily what it means to be a Christian, but what it means to follow Christ means when we have problems, we're going to respond by looking to Him for answers. So let me give you just a brief survey here. Think about Philippians. This is one of Paul's favorite churches. And when he writes, he writes very fondly of the church at Philippi, of the, the, uh, the, the members, the people who were there that, that made up that church. But in Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he takes the time to address a problem. He, he beseeches the church or he, 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 he is begging the church to get involved and help two ladies who just can't get along. You know, Paul wrote an entire book to a friend to help him solve a problem. Paul's friend had a, a slave who had stolen from him and he had run away. And then the slave was converted under Paul's ministry and was sent back to his master to be reconciled and to be restored. You know what that letter is. Philemon. Were it not for personal problems, that letter would not have been written. And yet what Paul does in that letter is he uses biblical principles to help resolve a problem. Uh, there was a church with a guy by the name of Diotrephes who loved to have the preeminence. And in 3 John chapter 1, verses 9-10, through 10, John recognizes this is a problem. And he knows that it's a problem that's going to have to be dealt with. And so John encourages and equips the people to do just that. In the Corinthian church... It's a church full of problems. They had people who were so at odds with each other, who were fighting with each other to the extent that they were dragging each other to court and suing each other before unbelievers. I wonder if anybody's ever thinking about that when they're longing for the first century Christianity. They had a man who was openly having an incestuous relationship with his father's wife. They were having problems, multiple problems at the Lord's table. And yet in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 18 through 19, Paul says we should not be surprised when these problems come. As a matter of fact, he says they must come. Why? Well, look at that. Look in 1 Corinthians 11. And I, and I go here and I, I, I elaborate on this as far as setting up what I'm about to say for a reason. And it's not just... It's, this didn't make it into the church covenant as some sort of a novelty idea that it would be a good thing if you would commit yourself to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 18 and 19 say this, For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, and the heresies there, divisions, problems among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Paul says, there's got to be these divisions among you. There's got to be these problems among you. 
Why? For the purpose of manifesting who is going to be approved, or really who is faithful. In other words, when the problems come, the question is, who's going to be standing on the side of Christ and who's going to be standing on the side of stubborn, selfish ambition and pride? Problems are universal. You're not going to get away from them. They're in every family. They're in every church body. And they come along with every person. The question is, how are you going to respond when they come? Well, we can choose to ignore or refuse to handle problems. But you know, when we do that, we're still categorizing ourselves as either those who are approved, that is, those who are faithful, those who are standing on the side of Christ, and those who aren't. Sometimes we can mistakenly think that a peace faker is the same thing as a peacemaker. Those are not the same things. As it relates to the, the body of Christ, the church here, there, when, when problems arise, problems must be addressed and resolved. And this is connecting this to a thing we to, to another reality that we talk about a lot. We're, what we do is we're, we, we, we normalize what church ought to be to the coming generation. We are stewards of something we're passing off to the next generation. And whether we like it or not, when we ignore and refuse to handle problems, we're teaching the up and coming generation something. And that is, we don't have what we need. This, we, don't, we, we, we don't have a sufficient way to handle these kinds of things. And that's just simply not true. Last example is in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It's worth noting that the epistle is written to the churches plural of Galatia. There's not just one church in consideration here. And as Paul is writing this, notice in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Now, here we could say a lot about the passage, but here's what I want to point out. Paul is not addressing a real problem here. He is anticipating a problem that is sure to arise among the churches in Galatia. He's, he anticipates that at some point they're going to have problems and people are going to have to be restored. And he's saying, this is what you do. The word he uses here is, if a man be overtaken in a fall... But if a church has much of a shelf life, you understand the question is not if, it's when. When this happens, do it this way. Do it this way. So I say that just to say it is normal. This is just run-of-the-mill stuff as it relates to being part of a church, that problems are going to come up, that personalities are going to clash that preferences are going to collide. All those things are normal. The question is, what are we going to do when that happens? Well, the commitment is that we're going to seek biblical answers to our problems. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Passage you're very familiar with. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So the Word of God is profitable or it's useful. Useful for what? Number one, it's useful for doctrine. So the word there is really just teaching. Okay, It's useful for 
teaching you and me how to think and how to live. So part of what it means to seek biblical answers for our problems and to build our life around the Word of God is we've got to have a teachable spirit. We've got to be willing to put ourselves under the authority of the Word whenever we recognize that the Word of God is calling us to think a specific way about something and that's contrary to what we're currently thinking. We've got to have a teachable spirit. Same goes in the way that we live. Secondly, the, the Word of God is useful for reproof or for conviction. If we're living a life that's marked by seeking biblical answers to our problems, then we cannot be resistant to or we cannot ignore conviction. There are times where people can be so sensitive to conviction or reproof. Uh, correction is the third one, and, and we can use that word sensitive to correction, but really it's, it's sensitive to the fact that I've been doing something wrong, that the main thing just gets swept under the rug. And what comes into the limelight is the fact that somebody's feelings have been hurt. Brothers and sisters, a normal part of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ is that we have to recognize we are falling short in some areas that need to be corrected. And so when the convicting work of the Spirit and the Word is occurring in our life, we've got to embrace that for what it is. You know, conviction is never ministered by the Spirit to destroy you. It's to grow you. So when you're convicted, you can choose to be a drama queen or a drama king and throw your hands up and say, I just can't do anything right. Or you can say, thank you, God, that you're not content to leave me where I am. And that you are going to you are committed to me growing more and more into the image of Jesus Christ so that one day I will stand before you face to face in perfect fellowship. And this is just one of the stepping stones to get there. So conviction, correction, the word of God doesn't just knock you down, it picks you up. And then instruction or training in righteousness. Jesus says in Matthew 4, 4, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Okay, the word of God is something that ought to be lived upon. And then. There are times where people have a hard time embracing the fact that Scripture really does have something to say about my struggle. It really does have something to say about what I'm wrestling with, about what I'm um, facing in life. Second Peter chapter 1 helps us here. Second Peter chapter one, starting in verse two, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ, our Lord, according as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, really what I want to focus on or what I want to highlight is in verse 3, where Peter says that according to his divine power, he's given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That means we're not lacking anything. It means that if there's some problem in your life, if there's some hindrance to your growth in godliness, we've been given all things that pertain to that. How? 
through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Okay, Then he goes into these exceeding great and precious promises. Well, where is all that found? It was found in Scripture. What that means is that the word of God is sufficient to address the problems that we have. But it's also worth noting that the word of God is not a topical book. It's not a topical index. So if you're having problems with. I'm trying to think of a modern. If you're having problems with OCD. You can't go to Strong's Concordance and try to figure out what OCD is in the Greek. It's not there. Okay, but just because the modern label is not there doesn't mean that the substance of the problem is not addressed in Scripture. OCD is really just a form of anxiety. We could go, we could go on and on and on and on. So when we say we seek biblical answers to our problems as well as seek to build our lives on the holy word of God, This is based on the commitment that God's word is authoritative. God's word is sufficient. And God's word is relevant to my life and the issues that I face as it relates to life and godliness. So I took a little longer on that one, but I think it was important to to flesh that one out. So practical implications for that. How do we implement that? Number one. As you're reading your Bible, as you're listening to a sermon, do it with specific intent. So intentionally take note of the doctrine and of the application. Read your Bible, listen to Scripture as if it's useful. So often, one of the reasons why we don't think practically about the Bible is because we think about the Bible as if it's just an, it's just something that's meant to have a real quick devotional read with no real impact or something that the preacher preaches out of for an hour on Sunday morning until we have lunch. But the Bible is given to us so that we can be equipped, equipped with the promises of God, equipped to know the person of God and equipped to know how to live a godly life. Number two, study out what the Bible has to say about a particular problem you're facing or maybe get help in studying out what the Bible has to say about a particular problem. And talk to your pastor, a trusted individual, to help you understand what the Bible says about a particular problem that you're facing. Another helpful thing here is read good biblical literature about specific problems that you're facing. There's a lot of good stuff out there that is based on what Scripture has to say about various issues. Again, the Bible's not a topical book in the sense of you can't just use it uh, uh, as if God put an encyclopedia together, but you can mine the depths of Scripture to find answers to the problems that you face. And the Lord has placed you in a body so that you have help in that as well. The body, the church is what I mean by that. All right, article number eight or commitment number eight. The commitment here is to witness to others of the love of God in Christ Jesus as described in the Great Commission. Witness to others the love of God in Christ Jesus as described in the Great Commission. Uh, So this is based on Matthew 28, 19-20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. The understanding of that is that the Great Commission was given to the church, and so we're all involved to some extent in evangelism and in discipleship. So this being a witness... Or 1 Peter 3.15, being ready to give an answer to those who ask about the hope that is within us. 
It just simply means that we are committing ourselves to witnessing the love of God in an evangelistic way and also in a way that edifies our brothers and sisters in the body. Let's think about this from a practical implementation standpoint. How do we implement something like this? Well, all of this that I'm going to talk about is really prep work. So number one, think about the ways that you've received God's love in Christ and then think about how you might communicate that to somebody. That's just a testimony, isn't it? Think about all the ways that God has worked in your life, all the tokens of His grace, all the ways that His love has impacted your life, maybe helped you through a trial or maybe through His providence. He blessed you in a way that you weren't expecting. Think about thinking about honing in on the evangelistic side. Think about the way that Christ drew you to Himself. Think about your conversion and, and how that happened. The way that Christ orchestrated that. As far as our testimonies, they're all going to have some very similar elements, but at the same time, they're all unique in the way that God worked. Not everybody came the same way. One of the ways that you can witness, that's just uh, declare, share with others the love of God through Christ in your life, it's just through a a testimony. And sometimes people say, well, you know, I'm just not very good at that sort of thing. And I can guarantee you there's a correlation between people who aren't good at giving a testimony and people who don't prepare a testimony. You're never good at things you don't prepare for. That's just the way that works. You may be good at at shooting off the hip when it comes to things that you're already conversant in, but when you get into something that you're not completely comfortable in, preparation is what makes you good or bad in that area. We've all, all of us who have named the name of Christ, we have all tasted the love of God through Christ. Now the question is, have we taken the time to hone down uh, a testimony? in a brief way that we might be able to articulate. Secondly, give some thought and some preparation as to how you might share the gospel with somebody when the opportunity arises. So it might be some things like, what are the main points of the gospel? Could you articulate that? That's not a very easy thing to articulate if you've never thought about it. It's sure not an easy thing to articulate if you're on the spot trying to come up with what do I need to start with and where do I need to go? People have articulated the the main points in different ways. One that you may be familiar with, Ken Ham talks about uh, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. The four points that kind of take you through Scripture and lead to the Gospel. There's a lot of good material on this that's uh, helpful. I like to use a couple of little booklets when I'm working with people. There's a little booklet called Two Ways to Live. Just a very basic gospel presentation. There's another little booklet called a gospel primer. And uh, that's just helpful for me. It's helpful for me to be able to use those as I take people through those and and explain what we're talking about. That's if I have a setting where I'm sitting down one-on-one. Another thing you might think about is, is what are the passages of Scripture that you might be comfortable using in articulating the gospel? Sometimes just having a, a passage that you could just anchor and walk through is helpful. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Where Jesus says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or John seven thirty seven, If any man thirst, let him come and drink. Romans chapter 3, 19 through 26, where... Paul talks about the fact that the law could only reveal our sin and that righteousness only comes through Christ. Faith in Christ. Even something like the Romans road can be helpful for something like this as far as giving a sequence of Scriptures and sharing the Gospel. Now how you use it is different than what's there. So a lot of times the Romans road's been used in ways that's not very helpful or even accurate, but it's it's just a list of Scriptures. So... The Scripture in and of themselves are true. 
So it can be helpful just as a guide. It doesn't really matter what you use. The question is, can you use something as far as a passage of Scripture to walk somebody through the gospel? And again, if you can't, it's only because you haven't prepared. There are ways that you can uh, uh, prepare for that that will make it doable. So witnessing the love of God in Christ as described in the Great Commission. Number nine, commitment number nine is that we will minister to the needs of others, especially the household of faith. Commitment here is that we will minister or serve others, especially the household of faith. Look in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. This is a statement that Jesus makes as He's telling His disciples who the greatest will be. He says those in verse 44, whoever would be the chiefest or the greatest would be the servant of all. And then verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus is making this point that he did not come to be served. He came to serve part of what it means for anybody to grow in Christ likeness is to grow as a servant. And so when you think about the one and others in Scripture, it wasn't too long ago that we were going through some of those. Those are just various ways that we can serve each other. Ways that we can minister to one another. Uh, Galatians chapter 6 is the other passage that's, that's connected to, to this commitment in the, in the uh, church covenant. Galatians chapter 6, in verse 10 it says, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are, who are of the household of faith. And so when we're, again, thinking about ministering to the needs of others, we have especially the household of faith. I think one of the reasons why it's, it's helpful uh, to articulate that, to clarify that, is that number one, yes, we are called to minister. We are called to serve. That's just one of the things that we ought to be doing. But if you're aware and you're looking for opportunities, they're endless. Okay, It's a black hole. And so you've got to prioritize where are you going to be serving? Where are you going to prioritize your service? Part of the reason why this is part of the church covenant is to, to highlight the fact that when we commit ourselves to this body, we're saying this takes priority. Okay, The members here take priority as it relates to my service. So you ought to be serving, number one, you're serving the Lord. Number two, you're serving your family. Okay, And number three, we're serving here in the body. Now that doesn't mean that there isn't any service going on outside of the body, but it does mean that as we live our lives, that it would, it would make no sense for me to think that I'm just as obligated to the Christians who live in Siberia to fulfill the one in others as I am here. Okay? If that's the case, I'll never get that done. Now, I love those brothers, and when I'm with them, I'm going to do my best to serve them and to love them. But it's as we've talked about recently, 
there's a sense in which we can say, I love everybody and actually not love anybody. It's easy to declare your love for somebody. It's a lot more difficult to put that statement into practice. So serving is an action. Ministering is an action. Something that's going to require time is something that's going to require effort. It's something that's going to require energy on your part. And so again, we've got to prioritize our circles of where this is actually going to take place. So thinking about this from a practical standpoint, how do we implement this? What are some things we can be doing? Well, number one, we ought to, as individuals, take the time to consider the needs of those around us and then how we might minister to those needs. So just like I talked about last week when it comes to praying for one another and how do we strategically, how do we strategically do this? So you could use your church directory and that would be a helpful thing for you to be praying through. Just because all the names are organized there, all the families are there, you were just praying straight through, you could make sure that you were hitting everybody uh, and doing that over a certain amount of time. Well, you may add this, uh, you may add this to what you do with your church directory. As you're praying for folks, you may take the time to consider what are their needs? What are some ways I can be serving them? How might I minister to that person? So what we've done over the last several weeks is we've picked a family or two out of the church directory and just prayed for them through the week. And so you can do that however you want to. But if you're doing that through the week, then that gives you time to be thinking about that person. That gives you time to be thinking through how you might serve that person. The other thing is this. Ministering to someone doesn't mean you have to make the biggest splash in the world. Okay, There's a lot of meaningful ministry that happens in very small expressions of love and care and service. It might be a phone call. It might be a personal visit. It might be a conversation at lunch. It might be that you recognize that there's someone that needs some yard work done, that someone has some laundry that needs to be done, there's meals to be given, there's cards to be written, maybe it's a financial, whatever it is, it's taking the time to consider, maybe even ask. And then maybe there's a need that we find that's way too big for just you or one person to tackle. And that's the blessing of the church. We have the opportunity to get other people involved. Other people who might have different gifts than you or at least different capacities or maybe just someone else that can help you shoulder a bigger load than you can bear. The point on all of this is that ministering to each other is going to take some initiative on our part. It's going to take some initiative. There's probably not going to be a scenario where you're sitting back passively and somebody comes up and says, let me give you five ways you can serve me this week. That's probably not going to happen. It takes some initiative. And so we've made a commitment that I'm going to minister, serve in the body. So we've just got to be intentional about that. All right, number 10, and this will be the last one for this morning. Number 10. The commitment to support the church financially with our tithes and offerings. Commitment to support the church financially with our tithes and offering. So anytime we're thinking about tithing or giving, the question comes up, are we really obligated to tithe in the New Testament? Wasn't the tithe part of the Mosaic law? Okay, and, and the answer to that is yes, the strict tithe, the 10%, the, the strict tithe was part of the Mosaic law. 
And the New Testament church cannot authoritatively demand that everybody give 10% or that anyone give 10% against their will. But there are some principles in the New Testament, and we're going to pull some from the Old, that we want to think about as we're thinking about this whole matter of tithes and offerings. And really, we'll get to the New Testament uh, principle on this and uh, a lot of times people that aren't comfortable with the 10%, um, by the time they understand what the New Testament principle is, they wish they could go back to it. Uh, because it's easier if we just have a black and white. The New Testament is not black and white on the amount, but it is black and white on the principle. And we'll see that in just a second. All right, number one, as we're thinking about Giving, offerings. We say tithing. We don't always mean that in the strictest sense. That's just the term that's been used. But giving, tithing, offerings. Look in Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. Now, I'm... I'm more concerned with verse 9 than I am 10, but one of the things that I want to point out from Proverbs, and of course these are wisdom principles here, is that offerings, givings, tithings, this is an act of worship to the Lord. This is an act of honoring God. And we'll talk a minute in a minute about how that honors the Lord and how that's an expression of worship, but... Proverbs says, honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of your increase. So it's an act of worship. Secondly, out of Deuteronomy 14, I realize we're, we're going back to the law here, but there's a principle that I want to hit. Deuteronomy 14 Verse 23, Deuteronomy 14, verse 23 says, And thou shalt eat before the Lord thy God and the place which he shall choose to place his name there, the tithe of thy corn, of thy wine, and of thine oil, and of the, of the firstlings of thy herd and of the flocks, that thou mayest learn to fear the Lord thy God always. So there's a place where these tithes are to be given and these tithes are to, are to be consumed. And, and the point that's being made here is that these tithes are being given and consumed, but they're being given for the purpose that um, they might learn to fear the Lord thy God. Now when we're thinking about it in this sense, it's just a an expression of reverence to God. And it's an expression of, of, uh, uh, of our, we said honor already as far as worship goes, but reverence in, in, in giving to the Lord. The 10% part is part of the law, but the expression of reverence is a timeless principle. Why in the world would we give, I mean, we're in difficult economic times and it looks like it's going to get even more difficult. Why in the world would we give when things are tight? Out of honor to the Lord. Out of reverence to the Lord. Because He's worthy of what we have. Now, we're going to, we're going to keep building here. 
First Chronicles 29. First Chronicles 29. Sorry, Second Chronicles. First Chronicles 29. Verse uh, 14, this is David after he is uh, trying to get enough materials for, uh, for the temple. He's praying, he's thanking God, and he says in verse 14, But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee and of thy own have we given thee? You know, one of the reasons and one of the ways that we show reverence to the Lord, one of the attitudes that we ought to continually maintain is this attitude that David has here, and it's essentially this. It's a recognition that all we're doing in giving to God is giving back to Him what He's already given us. It's this, this recognition that, Lord, this didn't come from me. This came from You. And for me to give to your work, for me to give to your purposes, David goes on and says, it's a delight for me. It's something that, that, that I don't even, as he talks about him and he talks about his people, who are we that we should be able to do such a thing? We recognize that all that we've given came from you. Came from you. Now, let's, Thinking about all these, none of these are the New Testament principle, although these principles carry over. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is, this is the New Testament principle. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 as it relates to giving. And I'm just going to look at verses 5 through 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 5. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof you had noticed before, that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not of, not as of covetousness. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. And then here's the principle, verse 7. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of, or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Okay, so if we were to distill this principle down, just to its bare bones, it's this. Verse 7, every man is to give according to as he purposes in his heart. In other words, you get to decide how much you give. Now, that's the one to the one-two punch here, okay? That's in light of this fact, okay? In light of the fact that God loves a cheerful giver, you get to decide how much you're going to give. See, that makes this a whole lot more of, an, of a reflection of what's going on in our hearts than it does a black and white. I mean, God loves a cheerful giver and He wants me to be a cheerful giver and I get to decide how much I'm going to give. Well, what's being reflected in all of that. Well, I, one of the things that has been helpful for me, this is a long time, um, I used to hear a guy say, you know, whenever it comes to giving and tithing, those kinds of things, you know, the gospel's free, but somebody's got to put in the plumbing. 
You know, there, there, there are expenses to be paid. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says we ought to seek first the kingdom of God. It means it ought to be number one priority in our life. And while your money doesn't add to or detract from the gospel message, you're not paying necessarily for the message. We assemble inside of a building. We support people who go overseas to try to help minister to God, the gospel to other people. Uh, this church, I think rightfully so, and I don't just mean it in a self-serving way, this church has always prioritized having a full-time pastor, recognizing that it's full-time work to care for the body of Christ, that it's full-time work to, uh, to be able to um, bring... Uh, biblical messages week after week after week after week. All those things are good, but all those things require money. Um, Brother Herb was here on Wednesday and, and talked about going to Mongolia. There was a big price tag to that, and, and I'm thankful for the church's generosity in helping them go over there. Um, when Brother Isaac left and, and went to Memphis and I was thinking about going full time here. I was excited about that. But there was a there was a price tag that came along with that. I, I had to put in my notice at Northeast and still think about what it meant to have a wife and two kids and fulfill my responsibility to care for them. There's 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 and in this, I know sometimes people take tithe and money and all that sort of thing and they use it to kind of try to exploit people. I know there are people that have taken advantage of other people and and uh, uh, so-called evangelists who have, you know, five beach houses and this, that, and the other. And we're not talking about that sort of thing. But we are saying that if we prioritize the kingdom, that's going to be reflected in what we do with our money. Because while we... Uh, have been brought into a spiritual kingdom, there's a lot of material things that go along with that. The other thing out of Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, is this, this whole thing about heart treasures. I mean, it's just true. Um, what you treasure, you're going to be throwing your money at. That's just the way it is. Uh, Fifty years ago, the average person couldn't dream that somebody would spend five or six dollars on a single cup of coffee. Now some folks feel like they get a good deal if it's just five dollars. Okay. Now, I'm not saying good or bad on all that. What I am saying is what you treasure, you will willingly throw your money at. Now here's something else to consider. So we're thinking about the fact that God loves a cheerful giver, that God says that you ought to give according to how you purpose in your heart, or in other words, you get to decide in light of the fact that He loves a cheerful giver what you're going to give. Sometimes people have kind of overanalyzed and tried to figure out, well, if that's the case, where do I start? Some folks have helpfully said, and I think it's helpful, I don't necessarily, I don't think it's a law, but I think it's helpful. Some people have said, well, you know, the tithe is probably a good set of training wheels. It's probably a good place to start. 10% is probably a good place to start. Take that however you want to take that. But think about this one too. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that ye through His poverty might be rich. Now what's the point of a verse like that? Well, the point of a verse like that is just simply to say, Christ is not asking you to do anything that He hasn't done and then some as far as it relates to the church. So it's a, you get to the New Testament, it really is, it's a matter of the heart. 
What are you going to prioritize? What are you going to invest in? What do you treasure? What do you esteem? Last principle, and I've already mentioned it, but I want to give you a scriptural reference for it. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians chapter nine. Verse 13 and 14. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live on the things of the temple? They which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So this priority that the church has had here to have a full-time pastor and to support your pastor full-time is a biblical priority. Uh, it, it's not just something that someone came along and said, well, this would be nice. Uh, it's the way God ordained it to be. Now, I understand there are times uh, where congregations are small and it just can't be done. Um, the, 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 the pastor cannot live off of what the people give. And where that's the case, that's just the case. But I also know there are times, and you know, as I say this, I can't help but feel like it's a little self-serving, even though it's, I'm trying not to be that, but this is just the truth. There are times where people grew up thinking that, well, when the offering plate comes around or it comes time for me to put something in the box, I gotta do something. And uh, so on a normal Sunday, I'll throw in a five. If I'm feeling good, I'll throw in a ten. Well, that's fine, but nobody can live off of that. One of the things that um, the Lord points out in the book of uh, Haggai is what are you doing living in these sealed houses, these fancy houses, while the house of God is in shambles? Now, when I'm thinking about that, I'm not thinking about that so much materially, although that's that's an application, as I am spiritually. It's a hard labor. And again, it's not a self-serving thing. It just is what it is. It is a hard labor to put together biblical messages Week after week after week after week after week after week after week. I'm not just talking about me. I'm talking about anybody who does it. And when you throw in a full-time job on top of trying to fulfill full-time pastoral duties, that's about more than anybody can really handle. One of the reasons why even good churches, what I mean by that is churches that have uh, good intentions, one of the reasons why they suffer and, and become stagnant and don't, don't grow like they ought to grow and the ministry isn't what it ought to be, it's just simply a matter of the fact that there are only 24 hours in a day and if a man is working full time over here and trying to pastor full time over here, something's got to give. And more often than not, it's the ministry that gives. So while that's a reality, I also just want to say I appreciate the fact that the church not only started out with this commitment for a full time pastor, but has continued with that commitment as a full-time pastor. Whenever Brother Isaac left and I sat down with the deacons, it wasn't even a matter of conversation or whether or not Brother Isaac was going to be replaced with a full-time pastor. It was just a matter of whether or not that was going to be me or somebody else. And that's right. As long as the church can afford that, that's right. And so the only way that happens is as every member of the church, including the pastor, is faithful to give tithes and offerings. And I mean that in the New Testament sense. So we'll come back this afternoon and look at commitments 11 and 12. Let's pray. 
Father, again, we, uh, we come to You and we recognize we have made these commitments to one another and yet we are dependent on You, on Your strength, on Your power, on Your grace, on the convicting power of Your Spirit and Your Word to stir us up to fulfill the commitments that we've made. Lord, I pray that we would be intentional about loving each other in the ways that we've articulated this morning. I pray we'd be intentional about serving You through our service to the body in the way that we have articulated this morning. Father, we love You. We love the church of God. And we love this body. And we pray that You would bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.